Job chapter 33, we're going to read the first seven verses. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth, my tongue speaks in my mouth. My words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. In chapter 33, we continue Elihu's monologue. For those of you who have just joined us, it began in chapter 32, and Elihu began his speech expressing his anger in chapter 32, verses 1 through 15, and saying that Job should listen to him in verses 16 through 22 of chapter 32. And now Elihu will make the claim that Job can trust him in verses 1 through 7. Elihu is convinced that Job is wrong, that Job has complained that he's innocent, that Job has complained that God doesn't seem to be listening to him. Elihu argues that God is listening and that God will speak to him through dreams and visions. And sometimes God speaks to us through pain and, and, and suffering and sickness, but most people simply do not understand what God is trying to say in verses 8 through 22. Elihu asserts that God listens and answers prayers of those who have a mediator, who show that they are righteous. That means worth listening to and responding to in verses 23 through 30 in this chapter. So Elihu basically says that Job should shut up. And listen, to consider, to ponder the wisdom that Elihu claims that he can impart in verses 31 through 33. So in chapter 32, Elihu makes the claim that he's earned the right to speak because the others have stopped talking in verse 1. Because he was angry about the direction of the conversation in verses 2 and 3. Because he respected his elders in verses 4 through 7. He was inspired and given direction by God's spirit in verses 8 through 10. Because the other three Friends had been unable to refute Job's concerns in verses 11 through 15. He com felt compelled to speak in verses 16 through 20. And that he would, wouldn't show favoritism or embrace flattery in verses 21 through 22. But now Elihu argues that God speaks in pain, in difficulty, in suffering. To save people, to motivate them, to repent and turn to him in verses 14 through 30. That God may speak to us in dreams and visions in verses 8, 14 through 18. That God may speak to us in order to discipline us, correct us, lead us, guide us. But few of us value the guidance that comes from discipline. Unless you grew up in a world like I grew up, remember where they had the switch and they said, this is going to hurt you way more than it's going to hurt me. And you go, they're right. This, God gave us a central nervous system. 
And it speaks to us. That God might speak to us through angels or human beings or supernatural beings in verses 23 through 25. It's possible that God speaks to us with answered prayer in verses 26 through 28. And that, again, God has spoken to us in many ways and at many times in verse 29, reiterating what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. So again, Elihu begins with a fervent plea to hear the truth. Look what it says. But please, Job. Hear my speech. Listen to all my words. Elihu is young, but he's wise, even for a young man. He basically doesn't command. He makes a request, not a demand. By the way, when you demand to be heard, are you more likely or less likely to be heard? Probably less likely. But if someone says to you, I'm begging you, please, could you just give me a moment? Could you just hear me out? That's what Elihu does. And in verse 2, he says, now I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. My words come from an upright heart. He's speaking of his motives. That he is speaking from not impure, but pure motives. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He, he isn't saying that I'm some sort of supernatural being with supernatural insight. He's condescending and saying, look, I'm a person just like you're a person. You and I were made by the same God. The Spirit of God that made you made me. And again, that's an important part of conversation, I think. When we ask and we answer the question, who are we? We're men and women who are made in the image of God. Because we're made in the image of God, it makes good sense that we should be respectful for, of one another and mindful of one another. He says, if you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay, human. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Elihu makes the claim, look, we're going to have a little discussion. And I'm going to be gentle with you. I'm going to go easy on you, Job. The other people haven't really gone. In, in some ways, they've been very, very critical. They have been very difficult. But he basically says, I'm going to go easy on you. I'm not here to strike fear in your hearts. Surely no fear of me will terrify you. I'm not here to try and make you feel uncomfortable, Job. It's his way of saying, if you were expecting a turn or burn sermon, you're not going to get it from me. I'm not here to judge you. Now, again, I think that there's wisdom in what Elihu is doing because clearly I want you to think about this. Job is drained. He is emotionally spent. He is spiritually raw. And if you've ever been with a person who's in the utter grips of difficulty, then it behooves you to say, I, I, I want to be sensitive to your very real circumstances. 
But the problem is if Job relaxes for even a moment, Job is in a, in a way terrified. He has been hurt so deeply. He has been hurt so profoundly that he wonders whether or not it's a good idea to listen. And so look what it says in verse 8 and 9. A charge is made against Job right off the bat. Particularly when Elihu says, I need you to drop your, uh, I need you to, to drop your guard. I need you to trust what I say. I need you not to question my motives. He says, surely you have spoken in my hearing. And I have heard the sound of your words saying, I'm pure without transgression. I am innocent and there's no iniquity in me. In a sense, Elihu is making the claim, Job, I was listening to you when you said, I'm innocent. And clearly, Job did assert his innocence. And Job, and, and that God's persecution is either harsh or unjust in verses 10 and 11. And that God's failure to speak or refusal to respond was a sign of God's apathy and indifference. It's his way of saying, I listened, listened, listened carefully to what you said in the earlier chapters, just in case you forgot. The problem, of course, is that Job never claimed to be sinless. That was Zophar's interpretation, not Job's declaration. Elihu's charge is false. He misquotes and misrepresents Job's words or claims. And so why is this important? You're going to see in just a moment. Job never claimed to be pure or completely without sin or absent guilt. Job's insistence on innocence was based on the absence of known sin and deliberate sin. And this might sound trivial or inconsequential, but Job's innocence is a particular kind of innocence. Job doesn't think he's pure in the sense that he has no sin nature like all human beings have, that he's not free of every kind of sin. Job admits the universal nature of sin, that all human beings fall short of the glory of God. We're all corrupt. We all inherit a sinful nature. And that's what the Bible says. There's none righteous, no, not one. We understand that there's something fundamentally wrong, that there's something fundamentally flawed in each and every person. We all need a savior. And just in in case you forgot, it was Job chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, where Job said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. Job 9, 14 and 15, how much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom, though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplication to my judge. Job 9.20, if I justify myself, mine own mouth will condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall prove me perverse. Job 13.23, he knows that he's not perfect. Just like in the New Testament when John says, if you say that you have no sin... You're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. I've actually met a person. He looked me right in the eye, and he said, I never sin. Yeah, that's what I did. I went, I, I, I don't know what, I was shocked. 
I was shocked that someone would make that kind of a statement. And I thought for sure that he must misunderstand the meaning of the word sin. And I discovered that that was exactly the case. In his mind, in his way of thinking, he didn't believe that there was such a thing as sin. He didn't believe that there was such a thing as a transgression against God. Job said, how many are my iniquities and sins? Make me known my transgression and my sin. Job didn't say that he didn't lie in chapter 6, verse 30. That he wasn't wicked in chapter 10, verse 7. That he was just and upright in chapter 12, verse 4. But he never, ever said that he was sinless. Job did claim that his prayers were pure. In the sense that his heart and his intentions were pure. It wasn't a claim of sinless perfection or moral perfection. And it may be that Elihu, again, misunderstood Job's meaning... Because in Job 16, 17, he said, Not for any injustice in mine hands, also my prayer is pure. Does Job claim to be innocent of all sin? The answer is no. Does he claim to be innocent of deliberate sin and willful sin? The answer is yes. As far as Job knew, he had confessed and repented of every sin that he had ever committed. And maybe sometimes you've been in a place in your life where, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Have I done something? Is there something wrong? Have I said something or done something? And so you confess to everything that you can imagine. You even make up things to confess to just in case. But Job believed and shared the same sinful nature common to all human beings. And Job firmly believed that he had done nothing to deserve the terrible judgment that he was suffering. And again in Job chapter 23 verse 12. My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way. I've not turned aside. Um, I've not departed from the commandments of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food, Job 23. Job 27, 6. My righteousness, that is my integrity, I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. So why was Elihu's argument weak? Again, I'm going to suggest to you that he believed Zophar's interpretation of Job's words He did not believe Job's estimation of his own character and conduct. And clearly he has no idea about what God has said about Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job has a clear conscience. He believes in God with his whole heart. He's purposed to obey him. He's lived a righteous life, a strong testimony of leadership and and the lordship of God. So why is all of this happening? Again, we have the repeated testimony of God in Job chapter 1 verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Now this, again, becomes an important point for each and every one of you. Because there's three kinds of estimations of you. 
the things that people say about you, the things that you say about yourself, and the things that God says about you. Do you realize that if you're a Christian, if you know and you love Jesus, the declaration of God is that you are chosen and you are adopted and you are accepted in the beloved. You see, there might be people who say things about you that aren't flattering. There might even be things that you say about yourself when no one else is listening. But the Bible, according to the word of God, for those of you who know Jesus and love Jesus and have embraced Jesus, he has a different view. And so in verse 10 it says, yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. This charge is true in chapter 33. Job has said that. In Job's speeches, he's repeatedly asked God, why are you treating me like an enemy? Why have you attacked me? Why won't you give me a fair trial? Verse 11, he puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Job's exact words are found in Job chapter 13, verse 27. You have put my feet also in the stocks. You look narrowly unto all my paths. You wettest a print Upon the heels of my feet. It's an old King James expression of. You are hot on my heels. Job believes God is treating him. Not as a friend. But as an enemy. Not as a loyal subject. But a prisoner who has to be guarded. And Elihu rebukes Job for his attitude. He tells Job bluntly. This is wrong. God is great. Furthermore, human beings don't have the right to find fault with God or to accuse God or make God unjust or unkind or unfair. But that's the world in which we live. We live in a world where everyone and their mother, even Christians, will sometimes hold up their Bible. And they're not just simply asking a deep question about a clearly, um, I'm going to use the word, uncertain issue. We all have questions. We all have pain. We all have problems. We all have moments where we go, is God fair in what he's done? Is God just in what he's done? Is God making the right choice when he's made that choice? Now, again, in moments of, of complete honesty, we, we understand that God knows way more than we do. Job believe, believes God, but he doesn't understand exactly why God is doing exactly what he's doing. And again, it makes sense to you. Because sometimes you don't understand exactly what God is doing and why he's doing you don't have access to the first two chapters. You don't understand the invisible conversation that has taken place in heaven. You don't have access to the end of the line when you've crossed the finish line. When you enter into heaven and you hear the voice say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
If you had the ability to see the beginning and the end as clearly as God, you would never waste a single moment doubting his love, doubting his grace, doubting his mercy. And so in verse 12, it says, Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Now, make no mistake about it, Elihu is a gifted young communicator. And he's a persuasive speaker. Job 33, by the way, is a model in speech and persuasion. If you are a a young man or a young woman who's ever wanted to make a perfect speech, then you should look at chapter 33. He states his thesis in verses 12 through 14. God is greater than man, speaks to human beings in ways that we don't always recognize. He then describes three ways um, that humans might speak to us in dreams and visions in verses 15 through 18, in suffering in verses 19 through 22, in the ministry of a mediating angel in verses 22 through 33. So he's going to assert his thesis. He's going to support his thesis. And in verse 13 it says why do you contend with him for he does not give an accounting of any of his words this is true why do you argue with God you know why you argue with God you argue with God for the same reason that you argued with your mom your dad your brothers your sisters your teachers at school your family and your friends With the politicians who run for office. It's for the same reason that you argue with everyone. Because sometimes you think you know more than they do. And maybe sometimes you're right. But the truth is that when you argue with God, are you ever, ever truly going to win the argument? You never really will. Elihu believes he has something important to say. He was sure that Job, a fellow believer, needed correction. You've probably experienced the exact same thing. You look to your left. You look to your right. You look to the people in front of you. You look to the people in back of you. And you say to yourself, you know, I think what that person's doing um, isn't right. When I was in Mexico this last week when um, Anthony was teaching for me here and I'm in Mexico, it was really funny one of the, the issues that the pastor came to me with. The pastor came to me with the issue of tattoos. There was a person in leadership who had a tattoo and people were completely upset and they were threatening to leave the church and I laughed out loud. Really? This is the most deeply troubling issue in your church? That there's a person in your church who has a tattoo? And then the person went on to explain to me that in that culture and society that there's a lot of different reasons why people get tattoos, but most of them are wicked and malevolent and evil. Elihu believes that he needs to set Job straight. He sincerely believes that Job has sinned in in his attitude. That he sinfully responded to his condition of suffering. And by the way, is Elihu right on some things? I'm going to suggest to you, yes. Is he wrong on some things? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. 
But what does the scriptures teach? How are we to confront each other? How are we to instruct one another? How are we to encourage one another? How are we to get along with one another as we begin this journey called living with each other in Christ? How do we get along with one another? In Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14, it says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with others everyone. You'll notice Paul doesn't give a one-size-fits-all. That the way that you deal with problems and pain and difficulty is you blast them, or you yell at them, or you leave them a letter in the agape box, and you don't sign it. By the way, here's my policy. If the letter isn't signed, It goes in the shredder. If I get a letter, no signature, shredder. Sign it. Be a man or be a woman. Have the courage to put your name on the note. If you have a problem, talk to me. Come to me. I'm afraid. You don't have to be, what's to be afraid? Look at, what's to be afraid? There's nothing to be afraid of. We have to figure out a way to truly care about each other. And if someone is bugging you, or if you're bugging someone, you have to have a way of dealing with the problem. And so there's a focused response. Job has made the statement, God isn't speaking to me. He's either apathetic or indifferent. I've cried out to him. He's not listening to me. And so beginning in verse 14, there's this focused response. And Elihu says, For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In other words, he's saying to Job, you've said that Job, that God isn't speaking to you. Are you sure, Job? Because God speaks in different ways. And in verse 15, he says, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. I want you to remember, and this is one of the reasons why I think that Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, when he writes this or when this is being written, There is no Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There is no Joshua and Judges. There are no major and minor prophets. There's nothing except God's encounters with people throughout time and space. He says in verse 18, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Does God 
speak in different ways. Again, we go back to the New Testament. We read what the writer of Hebrews says in the opening verses. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Does God speak in different ways? Yes. Can God speak through dreams and visions? What do you think the answer is? I think that the answer is yes. Are there examples throughout the Old Testament where God shows up to both believer and unbeliever in a dream? Does God show up and warn people or rebuke people or direct people? We see it happening over and over again when Jacob is fleeing for his life and his his crazy father-in-law is after him and the Lord shows up to the crazy father-in-law and he basically says, I know you're going to catch up with Jacob and I'm warning you right now, don't harm him or I'm going to kill you. And the father-in-law goes, God appeared to me in a dream and he warned me that if I do anything bad, he's going to kill me. When Abraham was disobedient and took his wife to Egypt and the king thought Sarah, even though she's 80 years old, is the hottest girl in all of Egypt, decides to appropriate her for the harem. For whatever reason, the king doesn't touch her, receives a dream from God saying, you touch her, I will kill you. And he goes, why would you do this to me? Why would you pretend that she's your sister when in fact she's your wife? Because God appeared to me in a dream and said, if I touch her, I'm going to kill you. Now, again, when it says, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. It's possible that God whispers in our ears. Elihu is suggesting, is it possible, even when you don't think God is speaking, that he is in fact speaking? Have you ever fallen asleep and you thought you heard someone whisper in your ear? Have you ever driven down the road and all of a sudden somebody comes on the radio and they say something and it sounds exactly as if God is speaking to you? God can speak to you in a commercial. God speaks Through a donkey. In verse 16 it says he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. It means to reveal something of a critical nature. Something vital. Elihu offers four reasons or purposes for God speaking in the dreams. To warn people. To turn them from their sin. From making bad choices. From embracing harm. To keep people from pride. To save people and keep them from perishing. Job himself admitted in chapter 7, verse 14. Remember Job said, I can't sleep at night. But when I do sleep, I have dreams and visions. So what is God's main motive for speaking? Through dreams and visions. Apparently to keep people from the pit. By the way, that that word translated pit is the Hebrew word sheol. It can be translated grave. It can be translated portal to the next world. 
What warning, what terror, what pain will serve as a big enough terror, a big enough pain, a sufficient warning where you'll go, I think maybe God's speaking to me. For some people, God can speak to you with a court summons. For some of you, God can speak through a jail sentence or through a diagnosis. Have you ever experienced something where all of a sudden it happens and you say, you've got my attention, Lord. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. That's part of the point that I think that Elihu is making. In verse 19, he says, man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out which once were not seen. He's describing a person who is in deep, desperate, difficult pain. Pain that is so bad and so hard that you can't eat. You can't sleep. And when he says his flesh wastes away from his side, I want to ask you a question. Do you think Elihu is looking at Job? I think that he is. He's looking at Job, and Job looks like a guy who has been a Nazi prison camp for years. He's emaciated. His skull is gaunt. His, his skin is, is stuck to his head. It's all of those difficult things that you've ever seen. If you've ever seen a picture of a child that's starving to death, that's the picture. And Elihu offers an insight that the other speakers have failed to provide. Does God speak to us in our suffering? Does God allow some to find food repulsive and allow others to waste away almost to nothing in order to get our attention? Does God sometimes allow some to come to the very distasteful threshold of death so that they'll go, hey, wait a minute. I think maybe now is the time to cry out to God. Now is the time to ask and answer the question, does my life matter? Does, is there some important issue that I need to face? Is there some important question that I need to ask? Like, how can I be saved? How can I have my sins forgiven? How can I know that I have a right relationship with God? How can I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? Does God sometimes allow some people to experience what you and I would call difficult and hardship and suffering? To bring them to a place of humility and obedience and submission to God? And I think that the answer is yes. And the insight is remarkable. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Job's friends argued that Job's suffering was evidence that God was punishing him for his sins. Elihu suggests that there might be another reason. One that the other people have overlooked. That God sometimes permits us to suffer to keep us from sin. 
to preserve us from sin. In other words, suffering may be preventative and not punitive. Is it possible that God could allow something to happen, not because he's mad at you, or he's angry with you, or he's upset with you, but God is trying to get you to go in a different direction, make a different decision, do something different. Is this a picture of Job? Job's flesh is wasting away. Job's bones are sticking out. Job's looks like that man who spent the years in the concentration camp. Is Job suffering because God wants to get his attention and prevent him from breaking God's law? I'm going to suggest to you that that's not the reason why Job is suffering. By the way, have we been given the reason why Job is suffering? What's the answer? Is he suffering because he's done something wrong? No. Is he suffering because God's trying to keep him from doing something wrong? No. Is he suffering because he's becoming an object lesson in heaven about what human beings are willing to put up with before they'll renounce God? That's yes. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And I know what some of you are thinking. You don't want to know what that threshold is in your own life. You don't want God to make a bet with Satan. How much is he or she willing to put up with before you go, time out, I'm no longer a Christian, walking away from God, walking away from Christ, walking away from the gospel, walking away from the church, walking away from everything Christian. I don't want it anymore. I don't want it if my wife dies or if my child dies or if there's a diagnosis of cancer or if I have to go to jail or if I have to do this or if I have to live alone. I don't want any of those things. And you you don't know where your threshold is. But all the while you're wondering, will you love him and will you serve him and will you obey him and will you walk with him if things are really, really good? Or if things are really, really bad. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience. He shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, unquote. Is it true for Job? Probably not. Is it true in many people's lives that pain does serve as a way to get their attention and they're willing to listen to God? Again, I know it's true in my life. A long time ago now, I was involved in a rollover car accident and I was the passenger in the car and the car flipped and it fell right on the hood, you know, the the roof of the car. And the way that the car hit when it flipped over on the ice patch, it literally crushed the top of my head against my vertebrae, causing a vertebrae in my back to crack and to break my back. And for a moment, 
I knew that I was in trouble. Because I had blacked out and then came to, and when I came to, there was a Colorado State off, patrol officer. And he was taking me out of the car. They were transporting me um, in an ambulance, and they took me to the dog and cat hospital outside of Trinidad where they do the sex changes. All I knew is the sex change hospital, and I just said, I can't authorize you to make any gender reassignments. So they're trying to evaluate just how bad things are, and they go, do you know what year it is? And I said, it's 1999. And they said, do you know who the president of the United States is? And I said, that all depends on who you ask. And so they, they knew that my sense of humor was intact, but they didn't know exactly what was wrong. So they, they send me through all of the processes. They discover that my, my back is broken. And there I am in the hospital. And I, there's not a whole lot you can do when your back is broken except sort of just sort of look up. And as you're looking up, you're just going, okay, you have my attention. You've put me in time out. We have some uninterrupted time that we can spend together and I'm willing to listen to all you have to say. I know that's probably not true in your case, but maybe it is. Maybe that's exactly what has to happen. I think we would be making a mistake if we believe that all pain, all suffering comes from God. We again know that sometimes we suffer because we make mistakes. We know that sometimes we suffer because Satan causes suffering. How can you read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 and not know that? We know that suffering can be caused by ungodly people. We know that we live in a broken world. We know that we make sinful choices. We know that there's lots of reasons why people are in pain. And if we've learned anything from Job, it is, we can guess on all of these different issues. But it's presumptuous to think that we know something when we don't know it. In verse 22, Elihu says, yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the executioners. The idea being that God will sometimes take you right up to the moment of death, snatch you from the jaws of death. Verse 23, if there's a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand to show a man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him in verse 24. Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom in verse 24. Elihu expands the theme. Suffering may be a way of God communicating with us. Our central nervous system has been wired to alert us to the presence of danger. When we have pain, we go, there's something wrong. There's something terribly wrong. When we have pain, it's God's way of saying, there's something wrong and you need to pay attention. So what's the message? Look what it says. Then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. What is the message? That God is speaking through this angelic being. I have found a ransom. Remember what a ransom is. It's the purchase price to satisfy a debt. 
We have our mediator, Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus is the angel of the Lord. He's the son of God. He's the one with the special message. He's the one who accomplishes the important task. Elihu hints at an angel. Elihu hints at an angel who is a mediator. Remember Job has said, I wish there was a mediator. Elihu says, what if there is one? And what if he's willing to provide a ransom? This is the heavenly mediator that Job has asked for, has begged for. Job wants an umpire to bring him and God together for a trial, chapter 9, verse 33. A heavenly witness who will argue his case before God, chapter 16, verse 19. A redeemer who will vindicate him even after he's dead, chapter 19, verse 25. The ministry of the angel in verse 24 seems to be simply an act of grace on the part of God. Elihu hints that God will sometimes speak and God will bring us to a point right on the very threshold of death. And the message is, you don't have to die in your sin. You don't have to go to hell. Whatever it is that you owe God, he's willing to. To pay the price in order to get you to a place where you will be fine. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Are there people who will listen to sermon after sermon and Bible study after Bible study and teaching after teaching and they'll experience every kind of hardship imaginable and every kind of illness imaginable and every kind of pain imaginable and then all of a sudden they're thrust near death's door and they hear a message coming through loud and clear, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to face eternity. I'm not ready because there's something wrong with me. Elihu suggests, I have found a ransom. I want to ask you a question. Remember, he said earlier, I'm speaking. Okay, you are. Is it possible that Elihu has been given an insight and a revelation by God through the Holy Spirit? It's not impossible. God spoke through a donkey. Has God ever spoken through unbelievers? The answer is yes. Do you remember in the New Testament where the high priest who's clearly disconnected from God and clearly disconnected from righteousness says it's better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish? Well, the very fact that God used him to speak a word of truth, does that mean that everything that he said was true? No. Is it possible that God can say something that's true through a person who doesn't have a track record of always telling the truth? I think that the answer is yes. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our ransom. We know that's true from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Warren Wiersbe writes, 
The concept of the ransom is woven into the fabric of biblical theology. The Hebrew word means to atone for sin by the offering of a substitute. The condemned sinner can't be set free by the paying of some cheap price like money, Psalm 49, 7. Good works or good intentions. It must be a ransom that God will accept. And God asks for the shedding of blood, Leviticus 16, 17. Job didn't ask his three friends to ransom him. Because he knew that they couldn't, Job chapter 6, verse 21 and 23. Only God can provide the ransom. And he did. If God has provided a ransom for lost sinners about to go down to the pit, how foolish if they don't receive it, unquote. That's true. The book of Job mentions angels in chapters 1 and 2. Eliphaz mentions angels in chapter 4, verse 18, and maybe chapter 5, verse 1, and later in chapter 38, verse 7, with the creation of the world. But I think in verse 24 that we're talking about an angel. And in verse 25, look what it says. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. Look what Elihu is promising. If you allow God to speak to you, and if you allow God to be the ransom, you'll be born again. His flesh shall be like a young child's. He shall return to the day of his youth. Remember in the New Testament it says you must become like a little child? I think it's speaking of simplicity. But remember, Job is sick and emaciated and covered with boils. He is in the worst condition that you can imagine. And Elihu says, his flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall pray to God, and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy, for he restores to man his righteousness. Job is promised that he's going to enjoy prayer and fellowship. And then it says, then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact. Three times with the man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Now, again, I want to draw your attention just very quickly to the word pit. He uses it five times from chapter or verse 14 all the way to chapter 30. God's purpose and discipline is to save people from death by crushing their pride, by bringing them back to a place of obedience, verses 17 and 18. The Lord seeks to keep us from the pit, verse 18. Rebellious sinners draw near to the pit, verse 22. They go down to the pit, verse 24. Now they're in the pit, verse 28. And when it's almost too late, the mediator brings them back from the pit. I think the jaws of death, verse 30. And they're rescued. God does all of these things to a man twice, even three times. Here's the point. Does this mean that every single person is given two or three chances? Two or three chances where they come close to death. 
and they're given a revelation or they're given light or they're given invitation or they're given an opportunity to listen. I don't know exactly how many times and how many messages that people have to hear, but I, I think it's an idiomatic expression. It's a, it's a metaphorical way of saying God isn't silent. God is speaking. God is looking for reasons for people to hear and understand and believe that he's willing to talk to them about their sin and willing to offer forgiveness to them. And see, this becomes a very important thing, particularly for the person who criticizes and says, well, how come God never told the people in Africa or India or China or, or in times past about his love and about his grace and about his mercy and about his redeeming love and think about what's happening in the book of Job. One sentence of Genesis hasn't been written. Not one line in Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy has been written. But here in the book of Job are human beings who are talking about the nature and the character of God and how God is willing to speak to people about their spiritual condition. And we know in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, God isn't willing that any should perish. And so there's an invitation to respond and repent and be justified. In verse 31, Elihu says, Give ear, Job, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will speak. Give ear, Job, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say to me, answer me. Well, which is it, Elihu? Do you want him to talk or do you want him not to talk? Listen to what Elihu's saying. Hold your peace. I think what Elihu is really saying is this. I'm willing to listen to what you have to say, Job. But I really want to keep talking. But like every good pastor, there's a time when we need to just shut up and the message needs to come to an end. He says in verse 32, if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace and I'll teach you wisdom. I want you to ask yourself this question as you're in this part of the text. We know that Job is weak and we know that Job is hurt. And we know that he has experienced unbelievable difficulty. He's listened to so much that has been said. I'm thinking that Job has said everything that he wants to say. I think that Job is waiting. He's waiting for God to speak. He's sick and tired of listening to the voices of men and he wants to hear from God. And he will. In just a few short chapters. A.W. Tozer said, The voice of God is a friendly voice. No one need fear to listen to it unless he's already made up of his mind to resist it. Isn't that good? The voice of God is a friendly voice. No one need fear to listen to it unless he's already made up his mind to resist it. You don't have to be afraid of what God has to say. 
unless you've already made up your mind that no matter what he says, you're not willing to listen. So what is God's main source of speech or speaking? Again, back to Hebrews 1. God spoke in different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by Jesus. Has God spoken to people in dreams and visions? Yes. But today, the Holy Holy Spirit speaks primarily through his word. Do sinners sometimes have frightening dreams and terrifying visions? Again, I think that the answer is yes. Wearsby tells the story of a man who stopped a stranger on the street and he said, Can you share a dream with me? I'm on my way to visit my psychiatrist and I haven't slept for a week and I desperately need a dream so I can tell him. We're not listening to people just so that we can have something to say. But for the person who really says with all of their heart, I want God to speak to me. I want him to speak to me. It's interesting to me how many people would love a dream or a vision, but they're reluctant to embrace the Bible when it is exactly God's word on almost every single thing that you can imagine. Somebody says, I want something specific and I want something personal. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that you will find exactly that. Something specific and something personal if you're really willing to listen to what he has to say. You see, the truth is God isn't going to speak to a person who's already made up their mind that they're not going to listen to what he has to say. God isn't going to waste his time with you. But if you really want to know, and if you really, really, really want to hear from God, cry out to him. Allow him to speak to you about your current circumstance. Job is silent. But if you turn just two more pages, the Lord's going to show up in verse chapter 38. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you that you still speak to us. Yes, you've spoken in a lot of different ways. In a lot of different circumstances. But there's a sure word. An infallible word. A communication that we can trust and accept. About our sinful condition. And about the solution that is offered through our mediator and our ransom. That a real Jesus loves us and has died for us and has given us everything that we need. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that man and that woman who so desperately want to hear from you. Maybe about a specific issue, a very specific question. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would minister to them and speak to them knowing that when you speak invariably it has something to do with warning or it has something to do with guidance 
or it has something to do with pleading for us to turn from our sin and to accept the provision of God in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be willing to listen to the most important message that has ever been given, that Jesus loves us and is willing to forgive us and reconcile us to God. And so, again, Lord, we pray that we would open our, our hearts to sensitivity and compassion and to point people in the direction that they need to go. In Jesus' name, amen.